Our Bibles are open once again today to Galatians chapter 3, and so be finding Paul's letter to the Galatians and the third chapter. If you need a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, and you'll find our text for today on uh, page 914. So join us there, and we'll also have words to the scriptures on the screen and also in your sermon note sheet that hopefully many of you uh, picked up this morning. We're going to talk about our Christian identity today, who we are as people uh, because of faith. I remember when we study Paul's letter to the Galatians, his initial letter of the 13 that he wrote, Paul is communicating what we're calling the essential gospel, the basics of the gospel. And of course, foundationally, how is a person saved? That's what Paul is getting at in the controversy in South Galatia over whether a person has to be saved by doing good works, keeping religious rules, keeping religious law. Does that have to be a part of it? Is that all of it? Uh, Or are we saved simply by God's grace through faith? And obviously, Paul is in um, a kind of a systematic approach where he's compounding layer upon layer and uh, emphasizing basically different aspects of exactly the same truth over what will be the first four chapters of Galatians. He's taking this subject extremely seriously because he knows that the stuff that he's writing about is the heart and soul of Christianity. Christianity rises and falls based on the doctrinal truth that we find coming from the pen of the Apostle Paul in the first four chapters of his letter to the Galatians. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about our Christian identity in the Lord, who we are because of God's grace and because we have deposited our faith in Him. Uh, Most people I know desire to know who they are and where they've come from. This is part of the reason why Uh, The genealogical business is such a booming business, Ancestry.com. And you got all these websites now that make it easier than it's ever been for you to find out your personal family lineage, who you are and where you've come from. And that's something that I've always wanted to do. I've never gotten into it too deep, but I did a little bit a couple of years ago. And of course, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, and I managed to find some information about some of my folks on my father's mother's side. In fact, I found an old graveyard just outside of where my mother's home is, just probably 10 minutes from where she lives, that's literally fenced off in the middle of a cow pasture today. You have to get permission from the farmer. He can't touch it, but you got to let him know that you want to go out there on it. And I've got ancestors back there that died like in the mid to late 1700s that I found out about. And so now I know where that is. All of my life, I'd never even known that cemetery had existed. And I gave my mother what for when I found out about that. It's just tremendous stuff that gives you a wonderful sense of personal identity and some of where you folks came from. Mine came from England, by the way, uh, though I'm delighted to speak with a southern accent rather than an English accent before you this morning. Did you know that it's important for you to know your spiritual identity as well? And you can know your spiritual identity. The Bible teaches that you and I have been created in the image of God. Did you know that? The Bible says that at the very beginning of the word, created in God's image after God's likeness. And I think because of that, there's a longing intrinsic inside every single one of us 
that's put there by God to want to know God. I think everybody has that longing. People call themselves atheists. I don't believe in God. I don't buy that. I, I don't think you want to believe in God. I think you want to believe in a different worldview, and you've chosen to go a different way. But God puts a little bit of himself on the inside of every single human being that causes us to want to know who he is and what he's about. And, and certainly that's very true for those of us who have connected with God by faith. We want to know that God is, and we want to know whether or not we can truly connect with God, hear from God, talk from God. And the beautiful uh, talk to God, the beautiful thing about that is that you don't have to hope that that can happen. You don't have to spend the better part of your life hoping that you can somehow find God. The Bible teaches that that's something that you can, in fact, know. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And alongside knowing that you have eternal life is the obvious truth that if we can know we can have eternal life, we can know the God who gave us the gift of eternal life. And that's a little bit about what Paul is talking about here. You can know that you belong to God. The greatest thing in my life is the absolute certainty that I myself am a child of God. How many of you know that for sure this morning? Amen. You can know it. I am a child of the living God. The Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. This I know. And we can know that for sure today. This is the spirit of what the Apostle Paul is writing to the Galatians about. And Galatians 3, near the end of the chapter, we're going to begin reading in verse 23 today. And so join me and let's take a look. Verses 23 through 29, Galatians chapter 3. Y'all ready to get into the Word? Would you say amen this morning? Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Father, we thank you for these words. So much in this passage this morning. We're not even going to have time, but just to cover some surface level stuff. And so help us to economize our words and use them to the greatest degree possible to communicate and to explain and to enlarge upon your divine truth from this wonderful Word of God that we have before us this morning. Thank you for trusting us with it. Speak to us now by your Spirit. Teach us what we need to know to live in a way that honors and glorifies our risen Christ, in whose name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Let's talk about our Christian identity for a few minutes this morning, some things that you and I can know alongside the reality that we indeed belong to Christ. If you know that you belong to Christ, there are from this passage at least three things that follow, which you can also know, and I'm going to give them to you to write down this morning. The first is simply this. If you belong to Christ, then you are a child of God. That much you can know. 
Key statement there is verse number 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all what? Say it out loud. You are all sons of God. That's right. Through faith. Now, let me just say this morning that that's both an inclusive and an exclusive statement at the same time. You say, well, pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, that statement is inclusive and that the phrase sons of God uh, for sure includes both men and women. It's what we call patriarchal language, but ladies, let me assure you this morning that uh, Paul is not leaving you out. Can I have an amen from the ladies this morning? Uh, This is just inclusive or it's exclusive language to describe an inclusive truth, but ladies are included. In other words, some translations don't say you are all sons of God. Some translations say, appropriately so, you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's what Paul is meaning to, uh, to, uh, to communicate here. So it's inclusive in that sense. Both men and women are children of God if they are people of great faith. But it's also exclusive in that the word all does not mean every single person living and breathing. All sometimes means everybody, but then sometimes all means everybody within a particular category, right? And what's the qualifier in that verse? You are all sons of God. What's the key modifying phrase? In Christ Jesus. That's right. So who's Paul talking to? Who's Paul making this statement to this morning? The church. The church. All y'all believers. All y'all who are part of the assembly belonging to God. Those of you that have been born again by faith. All y'all are children of God. And you've become children of God in Christ Jesus, not by works of the law, as Paul's made clear, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And let me just say this morning, the world would have us believe otherwise. The world would have us believe that all people everywhere, regardless of their faith, are already children of God, regardless of whatever they believe. But the Bible says, do you not know? The Bible says that you and I have to become children of God. We're all the creation of God, yes. We're all the offspring of God, yes. We all come from the creative hand of God, yes. But you have to become a child of God. This is the biblical concept of adoption. God made you, but that doesn't mean you're automatically part of His family. You're automatically part of His creation, but there's a big difference between being part of the created order and being part of the spiritual order. For that, the Bible says, you must be born again. That's what Jesus said. Not you ought to be born again, but you must be born again. The word means it is necessary that you be born again. Necessary for what? Necessary to become a child of God. Look at John 1 and verse 12. Yet to all who received Christ, that's an important qualifier. To all who received Christ, to those who what? Believed in his name, he gave the right to what? Become children of God. Did you all see that? Would you say amen this morning? See, that's the kicker right there. You have to become a child of God. You're not automatically a child of God simply by fact of your birth. Becoming a child of God is a spiritual action that results from faith in Jesus Christ. Even to those who faith in his name, God gives the right to become children of God. But what Paul is doing here, having made that assertion, 
is he gives us a before picture. Before we become children of God, Paul issues a couple of important reminders. He said, before you became children of God, never forget that you were two things. He uses two word pictures, two metaphors to describe what life was like before we became children of God. The first is that we were prisoners in need of freedom. And the second is that we were minors in need of guardians. Prisoners in need of freedom, guardians, or or, or minors rather, in need of a guardian. Both those conditions had everything to do with our former relationship with the law, the very law, the Old Testament law of God that Paul's been talking about for these first three chapters of Galatians. And he reminds us here this morning that the first thing that the law did was kind of function as a jailer in our life, which doesn't sound very hospitable to me, does it? Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held what? Captive under the law, imprisoned. This is Paul's way of saying the law puts you under the jail. Sound like Sheriff Andy Taylor, doesn't it? Under the jail, under the law, held captive, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. You see, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and faith in it that sets us free from the prison house of sin and the condemnation and imprisonment that we were held under by the law. Paul's language is very clear, held captive by the law. That's a word that means to enclose or to coop up or to hem in. And the idea here is that all those Old Testament commandments that we've been spending the last several weeks talking about hold us in a kind of prison. And the reason they hold us in prison is because why? Because you're trying to keep them and you can't keep them. That's bondage by any other stretch of the word. So they hold us in bondage because we're trying to live up to them and we can't live up to them. And that's just enclosing. It hems us in, keeps us from living free. This is what we mean when we talk about the bondage of sin. And this is why the gospel is good news because God sent his only begotten son to deliver us from the prison house of sin or from the bondage that sin and the law keeps us in. So this is how the law condemns us. We can't keep the commands of God. We try to keep the commands of God. We're frustrated by that reality and we find ourselves in a prison house from which we are unable on our own to set ourselves free from. Does that make sense? So the law is a jailer. And we need liberation. We need freedom from the bondage of the law. But the law secondly functions here as a guardian. That's verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now that word guardian, that's a Word exclusive to the Apostle Paul, he only uses it three times in the whole New Testament, twice here in Galatians, one in uh, his letter to the Corinthians. Uh, And it's a word that literally means, it's translated guardian here, but the idea that with a literal transliteration is pedagogue. Greek word is pedagogos, pedagogue. Those of you that are uh, teachers in elementary education have no doubt become familiar with the English word pedagogy. It, It means child development. Uh, And that's what this word means. It's a child guide. Some translations might say tutor. Anybody have a translation that says the law was our tutor? Not the best translation. Guardian, custodian, 
is a better translation. Pedagogue is the most literal translation. Uh, the pedagogue was not a teacher, fundamentally, <clears throat> though he would do some teaching. His response, he was more like a nanny to the boy of the house. Uh, he would be responsible for overseeing the child's development. He would get the child to and from his schooling. He would be responsible for the discipline of the child. He'd be responsible for the moral upbringing of the child, usually from the time the child was from about six years old until the time reached maturity or adulthood, 16, 17 years old. So in most Roman households, there was a guardian, a child guide that was given the responsibility to oversee the development of the life of that child. And the most notable thing is, because you can see this in ancient Greek art, it's not uncommon for you to see children depicted with a much older man, and nine times out of ten, that much older man, which is a picture of the Pythagogos, the child guide, the guardian, is holding a cane or a rod. And I probably don't have to draw you a picture about what he did with that rod. Most, the, the most common conception of the pedagogue is the strict disciplinarian. How many of you have seen the old movies that had the old, maybe from the Western period, the frontier period of the United States, and had that ruthless teacher that would get that ruler out of the desk and come back to that child and wrap that child over the knuckles until they bled? That's the pedagogue. Only they did it with a cane, a big old rod. And here's the thing, understanding that, Paul says, that's the function that the law served in your life. The law was that overseer until... God's plan for redemption, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, would finally arrive. The law was your strict tutor, so to speak, your strict overseer, chief disciplinarian, often rather cruel. That's a very apt description of how the law functions for us. The law can be a rather cruel thing because you know what it is. I mean, most of us in here could recite most all of the Ten Commandments. And yet, if you were to tell me, I never get frustrated because of the Ten Commandments, I wouldn't trust you as far as I could throw you. Ten Commandments frustrate the life out of me because I can't consistently live up to them. There might be one or two I'd do a pretty good job with. You think, well, I've never murdered anybody. Well, what did Jesus say about murder? Just think a hateful thought and you've already done it. <laughs> boom, boom, right? <laughs> Here comes the cane out again. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Can I have an amen this morning? That's the function of the law, man. It just lays waste. I end up with bruises from head to toe because I'm trying to keep up with the standard of the law and I can't do it. And every time I fall short, the cane comes out again. And so this is a magnificent illustration. And this is why Paul earlier in Galatians says that the law puts us under a curse. This is, this is why we're cursed. Because we try to live up to it, and, and we can't, and when we fall short, the law is always right behind us to discipline us. And one thing I found is true about the law, it does not spare the rod. Amen. Now, interestingly, just a few verses earlier in verse 19, which we did not read, Paul asked the question, why then the law? And in other words, what was the whole purpose of giving the law? It's a good question. And Paul will say right after that, it was added because of transgressions. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me give you three reasons why we have the law from the Bible. And we have to piece this together. Paul really talks more about this 
in Galatians uh, chapter 3, Galatians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 7 especially, not Galatians, Romans is where you want to go. Here he just kind of mentions it. But why did God give us the law? Well, the first reason is to define sin so that we would know what sin is. Paul says, for example, in Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law doesn't cause the sin, but the law gives us a basis for knowing that something is sinful when we do it. How, how would we know, for example, that it's wrong to steal something that doesn't belong to you if you don't have a law written down that says thou shalt not steal? You would know it. You'd think it was okay to go into a store and take something that you didn't pay for. But we know we can't do that fundamentally because God has said don't do that because that's a transgression of my holy and moral law. Uh, children come into this world having the seeds of sin within them. They are born in a state of depravity. But the thing about kids is uh, they won't know that selfishness is sin unless you tell them that it's wrong to hog all the toys. That's how they know it. Mom and dad said that I ought to share and failure to share is transgression against mom and dad. But unless you tell them that, they're going to hog the toys, and they're not going to give them up. Does that make sense? So this is the first reason we have the law. God gives it to us in order to clearly define what is sinful behavior, all right? And then a second reason that the law was given was to convict us of our sin, to convict us of our sin. Now that we know what's right and what's wrong because we have a clearly defined written standard, uh, we can know now when we've disobeyed God. And the whole idea of knowing that we've disobeyed God is to be driven to confess that sin and to repent of that sin in order that we might come back to God. Some have called this the disciplinary aspect of the law. The, the, the law makes us aware that not only is there, are there things that we can violate, but it makes us aware that when we do violate them, that we're sinners in the eyes of God because we violated those rules. And that's what the law does. It helps us to understand not only what sin is, but it helps us to understand our relation to that, namely that we ourselves are sinners. And that is supposed to drive us to a better way of knowing and relating to God. And that's a third reason for the law. The law was given finally to reveal our need for a Savior. The law is kind of there to condemn, but the law is not there to save. It's there to show us how desperate we are to be saved. It's there to show us that we're incapable of doing it on our own. So the law is necessary because without the law, we'd never know how sinful we really are. That's, the, again, the disciplinary aspect. That's when the law breaks out the cane because it reminds us every time we disobey that we're incapable of finding our way to God all by ourselves. And without the law, we couldn't embrace the one who alone who can save us. Philip Ryken uh, says this, great statement. He says, the law is the on-ramp to the gospel highway. The more we know the law, the more we see our sin, and the more we confess that we need a Savior. That's a great statement. The law is there to help us to find Jesus. It's to drive us to a, a way of salvation that we can't conjure up on our own. So, the essence of the first part of this passage in Galatians 3 is that before Christ came, the law was a jailer that 
keeps us in bondage. And the law was a guardian that acted as this strict disciplinarian telling us what to do and wrapping us across the back of the head whenever we fall short. But all of that changed with the coming of Jesus Christ. Because now in Christ, because of faith, we're we're set free from the prison house and we're no longer minors under the guidance of a cruel and wicked taskmaster. In Christ, we become children of God. Does that make sense? Amen? Let me show you a second thing this morning, and that is not only can you know that you're a child of God, but secondly, if you belong to Christ, you can know that you're a member of God's family a member of the family. Notice verses 27, 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. Two very important statements right there. Two of the most familiar statements really out of Paul's letter to the Galatians. The first concerns my union with Christ, and my union with Christ is my vertical relationship with Him. But then the second thing that it reminds us of is my communion with others, which is my horizontal relationship with others who belong to Christ by faith. First, we notice our union with Christ. Paul says two things happen in salvation. He says, first of all, we're baptized into Christ, and then he says, secondly, If we're baptized into Christ, we put on Christ. Now, what does that mean, being baptized into Christ? Baptism does not make us right with God. Baptism doesn't save us. And we know Paul's not suggesting that here because he's trying to beat down those who would preach that you needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so for Paul to turn right around and say, well, you don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved, but you have to be baptized in order to be saved, would be radically inconsistent. Well, the fact of the matter is he's not talking about water baptism. When he says those of us who've been baptized into Christ, he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about what we call spirit baptism or being baptized by the Holy Spirit, which is required for salvation. There is no salvation apart from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For the very instant that you trust Christ to save you, the Bible teaches at that nanosecond, you and I are baptized in, with, and by the Holy Spirit. We are indwelled by the very Spirit of God. Water baptism is an outward physical demonstration of that. Now, if you drop dead before you're water baptized, but you've been spirit baptized, you go straight to heaven when you die. You don't have to be water baptized in order to be saved, but you do have to be spirit baptized in order to be saved. Everybody with me say amen. There is no salvation apart from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I think that's fundamentally what Paul's talking about here, this spirit baptism, this spiritual cleansing that comes instantly from a response of faith. Water baptism follows that, and that's an external symbol to everybody else of what's happened to you already on the inside. The water symbolizes the cleansing. Water doesn't make you clean. But the water symbolizes the cleansing that's already taken place by the baptism of the Holy Spirit who's moved inside of your life and washed everything clean by His divine power. So this is kind of a sure testimony or a sure sign 
of our salvation. Baptism, water baptism doesn't save you, but it is a sign that you have been saved by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And another way of describing that is that we have put on Christ. Those of us who have been baptized into Christ, spirit baptism by faith, have simultaneously, it's really two ways of saying the same thing. If we've been spirit baptized into Christ, we have put on Christ. In other words, we have clothed ourselves with Christ. We've enveloped ourselves with Christ, kind of like putting on a brand new garment. We've taken off those old dirty garments of sin and self, stripped ourselves, or God has stripped us clean of those. And then by faith, we've put on a brand new garment, the garment of righteousness, which comes only by the indwelling Christ and his spirit. We clothe ourselves with the very righteousness of Christ, which signifies that we're living a brand new life in him. So that's the first thing. We have union with Christ because of faith. At the same time, God gives us an extra blessing. He doesn't leave us by ourselves. He's in us to walk with us for the rest of our lives. But then he places us to do life together with himself residing in us in the context of a larger family called the church. How many of you remember the old song, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. See, God saves us to do life together as a family. As we've said many times, Christianity is one another faith. We do it together uh, and we express faith in worship and service and union with Christ. We do it all together. We call that communion with one another. And Paul affirms that here in one of the most memorized verses in the Bible. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. I don't have to tell you this morning, there's so much that divides us in this world today. And we're divided people. We're divided by racial lines, social lines, sexual lines, political lines. And Paul mentions three of these barriers right here. Race, social rank or social status, and sex. Those are still 2,000 years after Paul wrote that. Those three things are still the primary dividing line in the world today. We're divided over matters of race, but Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek. We are divided over matters of social rank and socioeconomic status, but Paul says there is neither slave nor free. There is a great sexual divide that's as heightened now as it's ever been in my lifetime. And yet Paul says, not for the world at large, but in the body of Christ, there is neither male nor female. I mean, think about it. This is where all the great societal battle lines have historically been drawn. What color is your skin? What country were you born in? What do you do for a living? How much money do you make? Uh, are you made of sugar and spice and everything nice or snips and snails and puppy dog's tail? We're still fighting over these same things 2,000 years after the man wrote it. And certainly there in Galatia, what was the biggest of these, gulf, uh, of these gulfs, the biggest of these divides as it related to the crisis there in South Galatia? Race. It was race. We've already covered all of that. I mean, that was the big source of division that Paul's trying to deal with. But Paul says, look, in the body of Christ, it, 
our communion with one another because now we're part of one larger family where we share the same spiritual DNA because of our common faith in Christ and our common union with Jesus Christ. These societal divisions are not to be community divisions within the body of Christ. So this is a wonderful statement because in it, Paul makes this hugely important revelation, namely that there is no segregation in the body of Christ. No segregation in the body of Christ. I mean, ours was a Jesus who ate with tax collectors and sinners. They didn't believe like him, didn't think like him, didn't look like him. Ours was a Jesus who touched and restored wholeness to lepers that nobody else would have anything to do with. Ours was a Jesus that stopped and communed with not only a woman at a well, but a Samaritan woman at a well and told her how to find living water. Ours was a Jesus that told one of his most famous stories about how a Samaritan man stooped and tended to the wounds of a dying Jew on the road from Jericho. I mean, the family of God is a community of faith in which artificial societal divisions are supposed to be torn down. Paul will write more about that to the Ephesians, about how in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility to use his words, has forever been broken down. So in the family of God, there's never a time that we're ever to talk about one another by using terms like those people. There is no those people in the church. There's no those people in the family of God. You know what word is operative in the family of God? Us, us, us. That's the operative word in the family of God. Now, to be sure, we still keep skin tone. We still keep our sex with which we were born. Uh, We still keep our educational status and all of that stuff. Paul's point is, is that none of that stuff determines either our standing before God or our communion with one another. There's no segregation in the body of Christ. You know why? Because we're all family. Now, we're like most families, we're a family that's got more than a few warts. We got warts, and we got problem children, and we got a few sheep that have gone astray, but we're all connected by the same DNA. And the truth be told, we're supposed to love one another unconditionally. I had a guy ask me that one time. You don't really believe that all those people down there at Hillcrest, that great big church, you don't believe that all those people actually love you, do you? And I said, they supposed to. They're supposed to, if they're part of the body of Christ. We're all supposed to share the unconditional love of Jesus, demonstrating that toward one another. Why? Because we are the church. We belong to God, and we belong to each other. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So y'all with me so far? Amen. If you belong to Christ, you're a child of God. If you belong to Christ, you're a part of God's family. And then finally, and very briefly, if you belong to Christ, Paul says, you're a descendant of Abraham. You say, well, I'm not a Jew. It doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Being a descendant of Abraham now in Christ becomes more of a spiritual thing than a physical thing. And this was a radical statement for Paul to make in the middle of this Galatian crisis. 
Because all those false teachers up in South Galatia who'd come in behind Paul, they were teaching the exact opposite. You guys and gals have to first become children of Abraham before you could become a child of God. And you know what Paul says with this statement right here? Y'all already are if you know Jesus. You're already a part of the lineage of Abraham. Verse 29, if you are Christ's, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's. If you belong to Christ, you belong to Abraham because if you are Christ's, you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what Paul's saying here is all believers, whether they be Jewish believers or Gentile believers, all believers become children of Abraham because they are children of God. All believers are Abraham's descendants. You know why? Because Abraham was pre-law. Abraham was saved the same way we were. Remember, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In fact, let's say verses 6 and 7 together. Everybody together. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, this is just very important stuff because not only are you a descendant of Abraham, Paul goes one step further and he says you become an heir of the very promises that God made to Abraham all those centuries ago. Heirs according to the promise. So all those promises that God made to Abraham in the book of Genesis, they're fulfilled in us. Those of us who are believers. Not just in those who could claim physical descendancy in the flesh. Faith is the key. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Through faith, we share in the inheritance together, the blessings of God, now and in the age to come. This is our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know who you really are? I read a story just a few days ago about a woman in China who traveled just within the last week or 10 days, to her son's wedding. Her son was getting married. She'd never met her future daughter-in-law. And she gets there. And they begin to fellowship a little while before the wedding. And she meets for the first time the woman that's about to become her daughter-in-law. They talked for a few minutes. And as they were talking, the woman looked down and noticed a conspicuous birthmark on the young woman's hand. And it was a very similar birthmark to her daughter, whose 20 years earlier she had lost as a result, apparently, of some type of kidnapping. She hadn't seen her in 20 years, and they began to visit a little bit, and someone came up and remarked that the woman looked very much like the daughter, or the daughter-in-law-to-be. And she began to put two and two together. She gets bold and she goes and she finds the parents of the young woman. And she asks them, I'm going to ask you a very direct question and I hope you don't find it offensive, but 
is this your natural-born daughter or was she adopted? And they said, well, it's funny that you ask because we adopted her almost 20 years ago. And conversation began to ensue with others in the family that were brought together. And to make a long story very short, this woman finds out that the young lady that she was just introduced to her as her soon-to-be daughter-in-law was actually her daughter by birth. And there was great celebration there until somebody made the assertion, wait a minute, this boy who is also your son, you're telling me that this boy has fallen in love with his own sister and is getting ready to get married. And the people stop dancing very quickly when they realize we potentially have a problem on our hand until the mother smiled from ear to ear and she said, well, the thing about my son is my daughter here is my natural daughter, but I adopted him over 20 years ago. And everybody got excited again. (laughs) Everybody got excited once everybody knew who everybody was. Do you know who you are? The Bible teaches here that if I'm in Christ, I'm a child of God. Do you know that? The Bible teaches that if I'm in Christ, I'm a part of God's universal worldwide family together with everybody else who is a child of God. Do you know that? The Bible teaches that if I know Christ, I not only belong to God and to others in the family, I belong to Abraham too. And I'm part of that long historic lineage from the very beginning where God says, I'm establishing a people holy and righteous unto myself who belong to me now and forevermore. You can know who you are, but the only way to truly know who you are is through simple but committed faith in the Christ who died and rose again so that you could become his forever child.